We shall turn now to the Word of God, the book of the Revelation, chapter 3, and we shall read from verse 7. Revelation chapter 3 from verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true. He that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the art of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a, a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And may the Lord bless again this uh, reading of his holy word. And we come as enabled to consider something of the state and the condition of the church in Philadelphia, one of these seven churches that we are considering. Now, just in case someone might uh, have noticed, we have dealt very little, although I have mentioned them, the promises to each of the churches. To him that overcometh, I will. And uh, the Savior is encouraging his people, whatever the particular conditions happen to be, and any one of the churches, they have difficulties to overcome. They have sins to fight against and war against. But he promises us here again, to the church in Philadelphia, verse 12, Him that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and so on. And what we would endeavor to do then is consider the seven overcomings that are required and the promises that are bound up with them uh, uh, collectively. But also, as we consider here what is written 
to the church in Philadelphia. Again, we have these familiar words, these things saith he, and our attention is drawn to particular characteristics or qualities or qualifications in the glorified Redeemer. Now, it is worth considering that, as we've said before, the number seven is a biblical number that we find repeated again and again, the number of completion and perfection and wholeness. And when we go back to the Song of Solomon, we have there the conversations depicted for us between the glorious Redeemer and the church, the church speaking lovingly of her spouse and so on. And we read that when she considers everything about him, she sums it all up in these words, yea, he is altogether lovely. In his completeness, in his perfection, he is altogether lovely. And here we have the altogether lovely one set before us in these seven depictions of him. The seven introductions from him describe him. And so if we put them all together, which we may well do at the end, we will see him who is altogether lovely speaking to his church, addressing his people, and reminding them of who he is and what he does. Here in the introduction to the church in Philadelphia, we read, he says, these things saith he that is holy. Now, I know that we could spend much time on various parts of these messages, and we might take some time to get actually uh, to get through them. But there are some things that are always worth stopping just to look more intently at them. Unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia, unto the Lord's messenger, the Lord's minister in the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy. You see the connection between the angel, let it be an earthly angel, rather than a spiritual angel. He maketh his angels, we are told, flames of fire and so on, and they are sent, as we read there in the epistle that Paul writes to the Hebrews, the purpose of the angelic ministry. And in Hebrews chapter uh, 1, uh, verse 14, they are, are they not all ministering spirits 
sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Now, whether they be actually angels in the flesh or spiritual messengers, the purpose for their existence is to minister to the needs of the saints of God, to minister to those who are the heirs of salvation. That's the purpose of the gospel messenger, the gospel minister, the angel of the church. He is sent by God to minister to the spiritual needs of the Lord's people, to feed them with knowledge and with understanding. Now, you and I know only too well that there are many, many, many who feel miserably in that respect. And many appear to be in the ministry as a mere job. It's not a calling. And they are there to very often serve some particular ambition they have, fulfill some ambition or whatever. You'll see that the one who addresses the angel and the church in Philadelphia and through him the church in Philadelphia, the first thing he draws attention to is these things saith he that is holy. He that is holy. Now, you go back to the Word of God and the prophecy of Isaiah. And the prophet tells us that something happened to him in the year that King Isaiah died in Isaiah 6. And he had a vision, a heavenly vision. And remember, he is one of the angels of the Lord, one of the messengers, one of those who was an angel to the church in the Old Testament. And we read at the beginning of the chapter that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He had a vision of the Lord, the glorified Christ, as the Savior himself tells us. But he saw something else. Above it stood the seraphims, these spiritual angels, these angelic beings. Uh, Each one had six wings and so on. What are they doing? With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. And one cried to another. They didn't just cry out as though they were making an announcement. They cried one to another. They were communicating a very important fact and a very important message to one another. They were keeping one another aware of something very vitally important. 
They cried, uh, one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now here is a very different angel in the church in Philadelphia. And here he is reminded of the one whom he serves on whose behalf he ministers, these things saith he that is holy. And no minister of the gospel, no minister of Christ can properly or effectively serve the people of God as far as their salvation goes unless he is truly aware of this fact. The one who sends him is holy. And it would be good for the angels of the churches to engage a little in what the angels, the seraphims, the sinless, angelic beings reminded one another of the one whom we serve. We veil our faces, we veil our feet, but we fly in his service who is holy. And if the church loses sight and loses an understanding and an awareness of heavenly, divine, immutable holiness, well, the church is going to be undoubtedly in a sorry condition. God is not a man like to us. The word holy, we tend to think of something being holy, something that is very pure, something that is out of the ordinary. Holiness really means apartness. And we have the idea to, oh well, Jesus is my dear friend. And Jesus is my loving companion. And we get all this sentimental talk about Jesus. Dear Jesus and all this sentimental talk that people think makes them pious whenever they talk about it and talk like it. Here is the glorified Christ addressing a church and assembly of his people and the first thing he mentions is this. I am holy. I am apart. Yes, I am the friend of sinners. Yes, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. But I am still God over all. I occupy the throne of eternal majesty. All power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. And we have lost an understanding of who Christ the risen Lord truly is. 
He is the elder brother of his people. He is the friend that sticketh closer than any brother. He is the Savior even of the chiefest of sinners, but he is holy. And while in his humanity he has united himself with his people and thus his deity is in reality their salvation, we need to know who he is and what he is. He is God of very God. Now then, notice further in this introduction, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth itself. I am not only true, reliable. I am the truth. Itself. And without Christ, we're in ignorance and in darkness. But notice how they are put together here, holy and true. It's as though holiness is the root and true or truthfulness is the branch that grows from the root. It is as though holiness is inward, truth is external. It is the inward holiness that produces the outward, the visible, the detectable truth. He that is holy... He that is true, and he that hath the key of David. Now, we need to learn to read the scripture carefully. And you will find men sometimes, instead of saying, he that hath the key of David, they put it in the plural, connecting it with The keys, they say, that were given to Peter. The apostolic keys that were given to Peter. He that hath the key, the key of David, the key of the kingdom, the key of the king himself, the key of authority, the key that is used By authority, he, because he has this key, he openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. What is here the Savior saying to the church in Philadelphia? I possess supreme power. I exercise supreme authority. No one can resist it. When I open the door, no one, no power in heaven or earth can shut it. And when I shut a door, there's no power on earth or hell 
will ever be able to open it. Now look at what we see in verse 8. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. It's mighty good that we read those words. What do you think it would be like if we read the opposite? I know thy works. Behold, I have shut the door. And no man is able to open it. Do you think he does? I, he, am he that hath the key of David. He that openeth. Is that all he ever does? I tell you, this is a very, very solemn message to the church in Philadelphia. And the Spirit, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to whom? Unto the churches. I shut doors just as easily as I open them. The church needs to waken up to that. God's people need to waken up to that because he shuts doors. We don't seem to believe that anymore. We seem to think, well, so long as there's a building somewhere around and there's a notice up to tell us there's a service, a family service or a worship service or something else, everything's fine. Here's the one who shuts doors. When he becomes displeased, when he becomes grieved, when he disapproves of what's going on, he can shut the door. That's clear. It's clearly implied in what is written here. And if he opens the door, no one is able to shut it. And that must be the earnest desire of the people of God When he opens the door, oh, keep it open. Because if it's ever shut, it's really shut. I tell you, when God shut the door to Noah's ark, all the hammering that was available at that time of crisis could not open it. There were no machines available that could prize open That door, once God shut it. And here's the one who's telling the church in Philadelphia. The churches are in my hand. When I open a door for my people, when I open the door for the church in Philadelphia, yes, it met with opposition. 
Yes, it met with difficulties and problems, and there were attempts to shut it, but I kept it open, because I open, and when I do, no one can shut it. And when you think of it, you who have been brought up in this congregation, you perhaps a third or fourth generation belonging to this congregation, you will know there were times, as far as I understand it anyway, times of difficulty and weakness. And there were those who didn't have much confidence that the work would last very long, but it has. Why? For one reason. It pleased him who is the key of David to come and open a door for the gospel and the preaching of it, to open the door for his witness in this place, and no man has ever been able to shut it. And no one will ever be able to shut it, provided we do what pleases him. He could shut the door as easily as open it. And we could protest and shout as loud as we wanted. It would make no difference. He shuts and no man opens. That's a serious and a very solemn matter to consider. And it ought to humble the people of God when they feel their backslidden when they're not before God as they ought to be, will God shut the door? Will he eventually shut the door? And my children and my grandchildren, there will be no open door for them. It will be shut because we have forsaken the Lord. Now, having introduced himself, reminding the church in Philadelphia of his characteristics and of his power, he then now addresses the condition of the church in Philadelphia. Now, each of these seven churches, as we've said, they're all different. We pointed out last Lord's Day that five of these seven churches are all required to repent. There were things going on in each of these five churches that God called the people to repentance over. They needed to repent. And if they didn't, they were threatened. Perhaps it might be useful just to go back to chapter 2 to the church there in Thyatira. There was this slackness in the church there, this wicked woman Jezebel calling herself a prophetess had such influence they suffered her. It was as though they didn't agree And yet, they suffered it. You come along to some of the elders in the church 
in uh, uh, Thyatira. Well, why is that woman Jezebel acting as a prophetess and leading people astray and corrupting the truth and corrupting their lives? Well, we don't agree with it. And we've told her so. But she's a very strong character. She's a very strong personality. She's a driving force here. We're suffering it. We're, don't misunderstand. We're not agreeing with it, but we're suffering it. Isn't that what happens in a lot of churches? I have met men. I remember at a funeral once in the Isle of Skye when I was minister there and one of the Church of Scotland ministers was there and I was speaking after the funeral to him and he said, well, we're going to the war now. I said, what do you mean? We have a presbytery. And he said, we're going to the war because he was in a presbytery almost as a lone voice knowing perfectly well that he was surrounded by ministers and elders, some that he didn't even believe were converted. And I used to occasionally talk to him. He always reminded me, of course, he was the parish minister. I was just there by permission and by license. You, you would understand the church of... Scotland minister is the parish minister and that means he's the minister the official minister of the parish anyway he was suffering what he disagreed with tolerating it fighting but getting nowhere and that's how many are But the thing that we wanted to mention here is that in the church in Thyatira, God said in verse 21, the Lord said, I give her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. People imagine they can just repent when they like. Well, they can't. Dear young people, you take a note of this. You may think, well, you know, I'm only a teenager. I'm only in my early 20s. I know I do a lot of things that are not right. Even do things behind my parents' back. And I know, my conscience tells me I need to repent. But I have plenty of time. I have plenty of time. Maybe when I'm 40. Maybe when I'm 50. I'll repent then. I'll be more mature. I'll be more settled. It'll be different. I give her my time to repent. And she repented not. You don't trifle with God. Sinners do not trifle with God. Because my spirit, God said, shall not always strive with man. 
And my dear friend, if you feel this day you need to repent, well, you better be at it very, very soon. I give her space to repent. And she repented not. How very solemn. Here was a church in need of repentance. But God, through Christ Jesus, by the agency of his Holy Spirit, saith unto the churches, when I give space to repent, I'm long-suffering. I am patient. I am forbearing. Because every sin that is not repented of is grieving me and offending me. And I at any moment could issue forth and serve out the wages of sin that is death. When I give Space to repent. You better repent. How long has God been calling some of you perhaps here to repent? You think, oh, it's not a matter that requires any great urgency. Plenty of time. I'm just young yet. God gives time. It might be a day. It might be two days. There are some and they've been connected with this Congregation and God has given them ample time to repent and they have not repented. Does God just say, well, it doesn't matter, just carry on? No, no. My spirit shall not always strive and I will leave men in their sins when they don't repent and I will leave them to harden in their sins. And I will leave churches to harden in their sin. But here in the church of Philadelphia, there's nothing required that they should repent of. In fact, this is a unique church among the seven, the church in Philadelphia. It is the only church in the seven that the head of the church so commends that he actually advances the work in the church and promises to prosper it. No other church is referred to in the manner that this church in Philadelphia is commended. I know thy works. Now that was true of the other churches. I know thy works. You go back to the church in Ephesus. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and so on. But I have somewhat against thee. In other churches the same thing. I know thy works. But they're not as they should be. They are the works that are done in coldness. Thou hast left thy first love, and so on. Hear what does the Lord say. 
I know thy works. I thoroughly know them. I understand them. I know what motivates them. I know the extent of them. Behold. Behold. I have set before thee an open door. And no man can shut it. Why? I know thy works. These are the works I approve of. These are the works that the door was opened for. These are the works I want to continue. These are the works that I will uphold you and enable you to do and I will not allow any force or power to shut the door against it. These are the works that I want to succeed. The works that I am determined shall prosper. I know thy works. Behold, because I know thy works, and because I approve of them, because they please me, it's the work I want the church to do. It's the work I have planned and purposed that the church should do. They have failed in some of the other churches to do it. And I know their works. What motivates them? I know the compromise in some of them. But I know the works here in the church in Philadelphia. And they are the works that I am going to keep the door open in Philadelphia for that those works will continue. I am amazed. You know, I wonder sometimes, the more I learn of the supposed churches in this area, I wonder where has preaching the word of God gone? It's all night. They don't even speak of church anymore. It's a charity now. And men are fundraisers. And you raise funds by selling goods of this description and selling goods of that description. Basically, every church has what? What is the, what do all the local churches have? The op shop. That's the big thing. To raise funds. Why? Because God's people don't need to give. Members of the church don't need to put their hands too deep into their pockets. They don't have to honor the Lord by giving of their substance. So let's sell jam and tin food and second-hand clothes and puzzles and books and who knows what to raise funds. Where? From Genesis to Revelation do we see the church in the Scriptures 
doing that kind of work. Oh, people would say, ah, but in the New Testament, didn't the apostles appoint uh, seven men of good report and filled with the Holy Ghost to serve tables so that the apostles didn't have to do it? Seems to me it's the apostles now who are doing it. It's those who claim to be ministers. This is what they're doing now. They're trained to be good managers. And they rise higher and higher in the esteem of men because they're able to come up with great ideas. They sit down around a table and they work out a plan, a business plan. It's wonderful it must be when the church has got a business plan. God is his plan. Christ is his plan. But the church now has a business plan. How to work out to make money. We have moved far, far, far from the work of the gospel, the preaching of the everlasting gospel. And while I am not against in one way at all, I'm not against any efforts to do charitable works, to help the needy, to supply food or clothing to the impoverished. What the Great Commission is, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And the favor of God has been shown through history in sending men to feed God's flock with beans and toast? Of course not. To feed the church of Jesus Christ with knowledge and understanding. That's the church's business. Look at the multitudes. He followed Jesus Christ when he was feeding them with loaves and fishes. Jesus knew. He could gather a crowd. If he fed them with loaves and fishes, certainly he'd be popular. But there came a day when he turned to his disciples and he said to them, Will ye also go away? Will ye also go away? The crowds are deserting me now. Oh, they came for the loaves and the fishes. They came for the banquet and the picnic. But now they're saying, my words are hard sayings. And they don't want them. My dear friends, I trust that as long as the doors are open here, it will be for the approved work that the Savior approves of here in the church in Philadelphia. I know thy works. Does God approve of 
what we're endeavoring to do, what we're endeavoring to uphold, what we're endeavoring to preach here in this church. That's what the door was open for all those years back. It was open for the preaching and the proclamation of God's word. I have the key of David. And I open. And when I open, no one can shut. And I've opened the door for you in Philadelphia. And I'm not going to shut it. Because I approve of what you're doing and I want it to continue. No man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength. And hast kept my word. And hast not denied my name. What are the works you've done? You've done them in weakness. Thou hast a little strength. You're not a strong people. You're not a mighty people. You're not a a great influential body in Philadelphia. You haven't much strength. But you've used the strength that you have in the right way. And thou hast kept my word. That's why I'm keeping the door open. Because you've kept my word. If you turn your back on my word, you throw out my word, I'll close the door. I have kept the door in Philadelphia open because thou hast, with whatever strength you've had, you have held on to my word. You have kept my word. You have lived according to my word. You have worshipped according to my word. You have served me according to my word. You've taken my word as your infallible rule of faith and practice. I approve of that, so I'll keep the door open for that. If people come here for any other reason than to hear the word of God, they ought to be disappointed. They should always be disappointed if they come seeking anything else. I, who have the key of David, I will keep the door open because you have kept my word and thou hast not denied my name. Now why does the Savior say this? Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. Imagine the Savior talking like that. The synagogue of Satan. The assembly of the devil. The church of the devil himself. The meek and the lowly Jesus. Speaking of those who had opposed the church in Philadelphia tried to shut the door in the church, the door of the church in Philadelphia, saying they were Jews while they were not. You remember the Savior of the same contention. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came to Jesus and what did they claim? We be 
Abraham's children. What did Jesus say? Was he so cautious, so careful, so mealy-mouthed, that he would say, well, you know, I like to be courteous, and, uh, you know, if we don't want to cause any offense, but I just wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't want to put it that way, you know, you're, you're the children of Abraham. Uh, you, 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 you need to understand what you're talking about. What did Jesus say? Ye are of your father the devil. And the works of your father, that's what you do. But we're Jews. We're the children of Abraham. No, you're not. You're the children of your father the devil. That's who you belong to. That's the family that you belong to. And here we have the same problem continuing. The church in Philadelphia struggling along with little strength, but determined we'll hold on to God's word. We'll hold on to the scriptures. If we lose everything, we'll hold on to that. If we're not popular, we'll hold on to the word. If we're despised, we'll still hold on to the word. If we're ostracized, we'll still hold on to the word and we'll not deny the name of our Savior. We shall not deny him. I, he says, will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. That must have been wonderful. To receive a message like that, you haven't much strength, but I have loved thee. You've met with opposition, but I have loved thee. You have kept my word, and for that I love thee. You've stood alone, but I have loved thee. And I will cause them that have opposed you and tried to shut the door in Philadelphia, and have claimed that they were the Jews. What that uh, means, of course, they were claiming, we be Abraham's children, we are the true covenant people. But as Paul says, they are not all Jews that call themselves Jews. And they are not all the seed of Abraham that claim to be. Circumcision is circumcision of the heart. And here were these people and they had all the externals, but they were not right in heart. Oh, where does the opposition to the truth come from? Where does the opposition to God's word come from? Those who are not right in heart, whose hearts are not right with God. Verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. Yes, you've patiently kept it. You've been sorely tried. 
Ah, yeah, this is a temptation. I've seen it happen again and again. Men, ministers, starting off really well. Very promising. Truly reformed. Defenders of the faith. No compromise. Any way or anywhere. Churches open, the doors open to defend and proclaim the reformed faith. Then what happens? <coughs> they start to look around. There's a church that's successful. Look how they're growing. They've got, look at the income they have. How are they doing it? We better examine ourselves. And we better look at how they're operating. See if we can grow the way they're growing. If we can have the big income they've got. If we can attract the crowds that they attract. Let's see if we can change things a little. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience. You've been sorely tried and sorely tested, but you've kept my word and you've not departed from it. I will keep thee. I will keep thee. I will supply all your needs and I will keep thee. I will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. And historically, that is absolutely true of the church in Philadelphia. When all the other churches had gone, it survived right to the very present day in modern Turkey. May not be all that it ought to be, but that church can trace its roots right back to here. God did his, kept his promise. Why? Because they kept his word. That is the most vital ingredient to the spiritual prosperity of any church. Keeping and maintaining the word of God. Oh, that does not make that church popular because the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. Oh, he'll receive all sorts of things, all sorts of activities, all sorts of organizations, all sorts of schemes, but not the Word of God. And while I do not wish to criticize others or to find fault with others, I never want to see this church go down the road that others have gone to try and attract converts and adherents. Let's start this and let's start that and let's attract this group and let's attract that group. The gospel will not be attractive and the word of God will not be attractive to natural men. We have to learn to be absolutely dependent on the one who is addressing the church here. 
You keep my word and I will keep you. You keep my word and I'll keep you through every trial and through every temptation. And I will keep the door open in Philadelphia because I know thy works. And that's what I want to prosper in Philadelphia. That's what I want to continue in Philadelphia. Now, when we look at the seven churches, we see all the various conditions. We ought to be examine ourselves. What is our church in Grafton? What's it like? Wouldn't it be blessed this day and greatly encouraging? The Lord, the glorious Christ, the head of the church, would say, Well, I know your works there in Grafton. You're not a strong people. You don't have a lot of strength. You don't have a lot of influence. But one thing, you've kept my word. You've held on to my word. You haven't compromised my word. And therefore, I'm going to keep the door open. And I'll be faithful to you because you've been faithful to me. And I will keep you. I will keep you because you have kept my word. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast that thou hast, that no man take thy crown. What are they to hold fast? what they've got. Hold fast that which thou hast. Why would that exhortation be necessary? Because that's the very thing the devil wanted to take out of the church in Philadelphia. Hold it fast. Whatever you do, Hold the word of God fast. Don't let it slip. Don't let anyone take it from you. Hold it fast. That no man take thy crown. And may God bless this word to our encouragement. That we will endeavor by God's grace to keep his word in the pulpit and in the pew and in our families, in our homes and in our business, that that word will be a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. And we have God's assurance, the assurance of Christ the head. Because you have kept my word patiently, I will keep you. And if he keeps us, we will be kept. But oh my, if he shut the door, how would we ever open it? He has the key of David, and he's used that key here in Grafton. And may we be grateful that he has. Oh, young people, you think of some of you, your fathers, your grandfathers, your parents, your grandparents. And they can remember the days of weakness, perhaps, when the door was opened. And he's kept it opened. 
and he's kept it opened for one reason, and we must never lose sight of that reason. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we thank thee for thy truth. We thank thee for the church of Christ. We thank thee for Christ himself. And we praise and bless thee for the encouragements that are given to thy poor people, even in trying and difficult times. Thou hast opened a door here. We rejoice that that is so. Keep it open, we pray. Oh, may there never be reason that the door would ever be shut here because we have compromised thy truth. Oh, keep us, bless us, go with us, pardon us, and receive us for Christ Jesus' sake. Amen.